0: Controversies and Creeds, Chalcedon, and beyond. We've been following the story of the Church's developing, ongoing understanding of the person of Christ. And we've seen many reactions, overreactions, people that deny the human reality of Christ, people that deny the divine reality of Christ. We've also seen now attempts on the part of Nestorius to try to hold both those true, truly human, truly divine, but sacrificing the unity the unity of the person of Christ. Ephesus declares firmly that there is a true unity in Christ in 431. There's only one person that is, exists in both a human and a divine nature. So, unfortunately, it's almost expected at this point that after Ephesus, we're going to have if an overreaction the other way. And sure enough, that's exactly what we have in the heresy that's known as monophysitism. Monophysitism literally means one nature. What does that mean and how does that follow from Ephesus? Well, Eutyches, who was a monk and abbot of a great monastery, following Ephesus but wanting to take Ephesus and Cyril in a certain direction, began to speak of only one nature in Christ after the incarnation. He would literally say that Christ is of or from two natures but the human nature is absorbed into the divine nature, therefore losing its full integrity. Monophysitism here would be we have the eternal sun, but then we have a human nature which is somehow absorbed into the eternal sun, so that there is only one nature left, mono meaning one, and then phusis meaning nature. So what happens here is that Eutyches emphasizes this and it's kind of like Arianism. They wouldn't have seen themselves like Arianism, but what happens here? Christ is somehow between the transcendent God and man. Is he man? Well, no, he's not man because he doesn't have a full human nature. He's from two natures, but now he only exists in the one nature of the word. But is he the transcendent God? Well, no, he's not the transcendent God because he's absorbed into himself now a human nature. So we have the same tendency to somehow put Christ between the transcendent God and the common man, instead of allowing him to be both fully God and fully man. Well, the church responded to monophysitism by saying what she'd always said, namely that the eternal Son became incarnate and assumed a fully human nature, that Christ is not only of or from two natures, but that he is in two natures, that he exists in his life in two natures, divine and human, and he exists now in two natures, divine and human. The Council of Chalcedon held in 451 was led by Pope Leo the Great. Pope Leo the Great had written a famous tome, a tome to Flavian, and the council actually said that Peter had spoken through Leo the 520 bishops gathered there at Chalcedon uh, affirmed that the truth in Pope Leo's teachings about the person of Christ and what the council actually stated in its teaching and the council of Chalcedon was not meant to be a creed surpassing the former creed the 19 council of creed which was finalized in 381 but it's really meant as a commentary on the one part of the creed that says, the word became man. What does that mean? So it affirms everything, it doesn't mean to replace it, but it's a commentary on that creed. And so what happens in Chalcedon? Well, Chalcedon following Leo states very clearly that Jesus Christ is not only of the same nature, and remember the technical word there is homoousius, Christ is not only homoousius of the same nature with the Father, but he is also Homoousios with us, of the same nature as we are. So that fundamental teaching avoids monophysitism, because monophysitism has him being neither fully like God and certainly not like us. So to avoid false interpretations of how the two natures, divine and human, are united in Christ, Chalcedon declares, we confess that the one and same Christ, Lord, and only begotten Son, is to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, change, division, or separation. That phrase there at the end, those four adverbs, as they're sometimes called, without confusion, change, separation, division. Those four adverbs are kind of like, in a way, a box that we can't go out of. They set the guidelines for how do we understand those two natures in Christ to be related. Against monophysitism, it says the two natures are without confusion or change. Monophysitism said that they are basically confused and changed into one another. The human nature is absorbed into the divine nature. But monophysitism isn't the only heresy. Chalcedon also said against Nestorianism, an earlier heresy, that the two natures are not divided or separated. Nestorius, remember, taught that there were two persons in Christ. The two natures were separated into two persons, only united by a common will. So these four adverbs, they don't explain how the two natures are united, but they simply say that they are united, yet they remain distinct. They are distinct, they are without confusion or change, they're not melded into one another, but nor are they divided or separated from each other. They are distinct, but united. And it says explicitly, They are united in one person and one hypostasis. By being united in one hypostasis and one person, it says there is a true personal union. The union actually occurs in the person of the Word, in the person of the eternal Son. That means that the union occurs in the second person of the Trinity. And because of that, that's the origin of the phrase the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is a personal union. It means the union of the two natures occurs in the one person, or the one hypostasis, of the second person of the Trinity. So therefore, it's a personal union. It's a union that's rooted. It's not accidental to who Christ is, but it's constitutive of his whole assumption of human nature. So Chalcedon, in a way, is kind of a landmark in the development of Christology. But nonetheless, as we'll see, there will continue to be misinterpretations of it afterwards. After Chalcedon, we have the next two heresies that are, in a way, basically kind of outgrowths of monophysitism. They accept that Christ is in two natures, so they accept Chalcedon in that way. But they still try to deny a fully human nature. They say that Christ has a human nature, but that Christ's human nature does not have a human will, or that if it has a will, it is not active. These two heresies are first known as monothelitism, and secondly as monergonism. Monothelitism says that there is only one will in Christ, and monergism says that there is only one activity in Christ. So both of these, we see the same tendencies that we've seen throughout, both in Apollinarianism, monophysitism, a distrust of giving too much weight to the human will. Christ only has one will, and that one will is the divine will. There is no human will. Or he only has one activity. He has a human will, but it's not active. Christ acts simply because of the divine will. What we see that both these heresies, in a way, follow the letter of Chalcedon, and yet neither follow the Spirit, in a way that was an orthodox term would speak of the actions of Christ as theandric. Theandric coming from the word theos for God and then andreos for man. So theandric means God, man, or divine human actions. But what happened here is that because they denied the human will, they said that they were divine human actions, theandric actions of Christ. What that meant was that the actions were not fully human. They were, in a way, not fully divine. They were divino-human, or divine human in character. And again, we have the same thing we've talked about, a tendency to put Christ between the transcendent God and common human nature, Christ somehow in between. And so ultimately what would happen if Christ didn't have a human will, as was asserted here, Christ's humanity then would become really a dumb instrument of the divine. So the divine would be acting, and the human nature would simply be a dumb instrument. You know, in a sense, being led around without really participating in. So you have a human nature and even a human soul, but the human soul doesn't have a human will, or the human soul has a human will, but the human will is not active. The Catholic response to this heresy was prolongated and was a long history in the 6th and 7th centuries but it was firm that Christ does have a true human will and a true human activity. That again, Christ is the eternal son, but the eternal son has become truly human. Christ's full humanity freely cooperates with the divine will, but it cooperates as a rational instrument. So as Athanasius and others spoke of Jesus Christ and of his human nature as an instrument, they were right. But his human nature was a rational instrument. It wasn't a dumb instrument. It was an instrument that was fully reasonable, had a full human will, a full human passions. And because of that, was able to be a rational instrument of the word. In other words, the human will here perfectly conforms to the divine will, and yet retains its integrity as a human will. Otherwise, sanctity, or the whole notion of conforming to God's will, would literally mean the loss of humanity for all human beings. So Christ can be fully conformed to God in any sense without losing any part of the perfection or completion of his human nature. The great Orthodox hero in this instance is Saint Maximus the Confessor. He was the great defender of two wills in Christ, one fully human, one fully divine. Among many arguments that he used, he used the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying on the night before he was gonna be crucified, Jesus prayed, not my will, but thine be done. This beautiful prayer of Christ, right? Not my will, but thine be done. He submits his will, which is a human will, to the will of God, to the will of the Father. And he shows that his will is actually, of course, perfectly conformed to it, because by saying, not my will, but thine be done, he is, of course, saying that it is truly his will that the Father's will be accomplished. Saint Maximus became a confessor because he was tortured and actually had his tongue cut out for professing this faith by an emperor who was following the Monothelites. But nonetheless, he always maintained it and eventually his teaching was confirmed and taught at the Third Council of Constantinople in 681. This Third Council of Constantinople taught explicitly that there were two wills in Christ, a divine and a human, but that the human will does not resist or oppose, but rather submits to the divine and almighty will. And this council, the third Constantinople in 681, extended those four adverbs without confusion or change, separation or division, and said that those adverbs not only apply to the two natures, but also apply to the two wills and to the two activities of those wills. So we have two natures now, we have two wills, and the two activities of those natures, but they are not in any way divided or separated, nor are they confused or changed. They are perfectly united in the one person, but they are also distinct. Pope Martin I, by the way, was the pope who also suffered, at one point exiled, with Saint Maximus by the emperor for their resistance to this doctrine. And what we have here though is a great deepening of Chalcedon and also Cyril. From Cyril, Maximus emphasized the great unity of the natures, the great unity of the person. From Chalcedon, he was able to refine the distinction of the natures together. And he would literally say that with Cyril, we can say that Christ is of or from two natures. With Leo, we can say that he is in two natures and that we can actually say that the two natures is Christ. Precisely, he says, to quote him here, in Jesus we see the two natures, quote, from which, in which, and which is the Christ. So we have this great deepening insight to this wonderful unity that the two natures are perfectly active and yet also perfectly united in the one person of Christ. He extends the example that I mentioned earlier from St. Athanasius of the iron bar that's placed in a fire. Athanasius has said the iron bar in fire has both the solidity of nature, but also the heat of fire. Well, Maximus takes this example and says, don't think of an iron bar in fire, but think of a burning sword. Think of a burning sword, and think of a burning sword that is active. The one sword both burns and cuts. Insofar as it's a sword, it cuts, but insofar as it's burning, it burns. So that one sword both burns and cuts. The one Christ both acts in a way that is prop fully human, also acts in a way that is fully divine. There's great spiritual fruit to Maximus's teachings, and many of his collections are wonderful fruit for spiritual reading. But part of what he does, he shows that the human being, human nature, can become divine, can become fully sharing in the life of God without ceasing to be human. We have here the teaching uh, that's known as deification or divinization, that man literally becomes to share and participate in the divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 says that we have become partakers or sharers in the divine nature because of Christ. And so human beings are divinized, they share in the divine nature. And what Maximus teaches in a way against the Monothelites or the Monergists or the Monophysitists, is that for human beings to be deified does not mean that they cease to be human. Because again, what good would salvation do us if salvation meant we had to stop being human? Then Christ would not have saved man as man, but would have saved man by having us no longer be fully human. So Maximus's spiritual teaching, or the spiritual fruit of his Christological work, is that human beings can be fully conformed to the divine will, just as in Christ, in a personal union, you have the human nature fully and completely submitted and conformed to the divine nature, the human will perfectly conformed to the divine will. So in all human beings, insofar as they are in Christ, their wills, are gonna be most perfect, most actualized, when they are most perfectly conformed to the will of God. Now then, as we kind of finish in a way our section here, we're now in the seventh century, around 700, we've gone through all these different heresies. What are some fruits that we can look at? What are some things we can gain from having examined the story of the creeds, the early heretics, the early orthodox champions? Well, the main fruit that I think we see is that many of the early heresies, they tended to view the human and the divine natures in Christ as kind of engaged in a turf battle almost. That if the human nature was more involved, that put the divine nature at risk. If the divine nature was more involved, that put the human nature at risk. And so what tended to happen, they either emphasized the human nature to the exclusion of the divine nature, or they emphasized the divine nature to the exclusion of the human nature, or, following Nestorius, they said Christ was fully human and fully divine, but separate, two persons. So what happened here? And what did the church insist on all along that allowed her to profess the great truth that Christ, the eternal Son, became incarnate in a truly human, fully human nature? Well, what the church did is that the church always refused to see Christ as somehow in between the transcendent God and human nature. That what the church saw was that if we properly understand creation, and if we properly understand the person of Christ, we will see that the two natures, the divine and the human, are not on the same level. It's not as though the human and the divine nature are on the same level and competing with each other for preeminence in Christ. No, the divine nature is on a wholly different level than the human nature. God, as the creator, is the creator of everything that exists. So the divine nature is the source of the human nature. Another way of putting it is that there is, as many of the early Christians, even the heretics, knew, there is a great divide between the transcendent God and creation, between the transcendent divine nature and the human nature. But it's not the case that that distinction between the creator and the creature is so great that we need a third thing in the middle. Rather, it's the case that the distinction between the creator and the creature is so great that because of that, we can actually conceive that a being, namely Christ, could be both perfectly God and perfectly a creature without having those two natures compete with one another. Another way of putting it is that there is a non-competitive relationship between the divine nature and the human nature that in Christ, the divine nature and the human nature are not in competition with each other. It's not like Mr. Ed, where the human nature and the horse nature are not on the same level, but they're both creatures. So therefore, you can't be both a horse and a man. You're either one or the other. Whereas in the case of God, it's different. You can be a fully human being. You could have a full human nature. And in Christ, Christ could also have a divine nature. But the divine nature and the human would not... In any sense compete with each other because the divine nature is the very source of the human nature. The divine nature is being itself. It's this perfection of all being, this perfect act, perfect actuality. This being itself as is revealed ultimately through Moses' statement, God's statement to Moses, I am who I am. I am the one who is. I am he who is. God is perfect existence. From that perfect existence, he creates things in the world. And the things in the world don't have perfect existence, but they have participated existence. They share in God's existence. So because of that, Christ himself, as a man, as a human nature, can have a perfect human existence. In no way does it compete with the perfect existence of his divine nature. Instead, because they are on different levels, his divine nature is the source of everything. It's the creator, his human nature merely participates in the perfect act of being. It's a creature. So because the Creator and the creature are distinct from one another, and in that sense are separate, the Creator, who is perfect existence in self, can actually be intimately present to each point in creation, because each point in creation receives its being from God, who is true being. So because of that, Christ in his divine human natures in no way is um, a turf battle, and that's what the Orthodox Church and the Creeds have always said. They said that Christ can be both fully God, completely God, and also completely man. We are not going to be able to understand or to grasp how those two natures interact with each other, because by definition, the way that God is divine, the way that his divine nature acts, is beyond our conceptual understanding because it's perfect existence itself. But nonetheless, although we can't understand how God acts, we can understand that God acts perfectly and completely in His divine nature, and therefore, God can act in His human nature in Christ in a way that is in no sense competing with that. So thus we can have what the Church affirmed from early on, that Christ can truly be perfectus Deus et perfectus homo perfect and perfectus in the latin really doesn't mean perfect insofar as you get 100 percent on everything but it means perfect insofar as complete so he is completely god he is the complete god he is also the complete perfected man and this of course has a tremendous spiritual and theological importance once we see this in the case of christ that the divine and the human nature are not in competition with each other but can be fully present to each other in the one person of Christ we also see that for us, human beings, issues like God's grace and human free will, well, if in Christ the divine nature and the human nature are not competing, so also for us. God's grace does not compete with our human will. God's grace is in a non-competitive relationship with our human will. Thus, we can say if our conversion and our salvation is the fruit of Christ, It is both 100% from God, and it's 100% from us. It is God who gives us the strength to will. It is nonetheless we who will. So in all these different ways, we see that the church over the centuries in responding to these different heresies came to a really deeper, to a much deeper, and a greater appreciation for Jesus Christ, for the great mystery of Christ and the great mystery of his salvation, and that all along she safeguarded jealously this doctrine, the central teaching that in Jesus Christ, God has saved man. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.